0: Turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 11, please. 1 Corinthians 11. In our scripture reading this morning, we have already read the basis for this text from Luke 22. But now in 1 Corinthians 11, beginning in verse 23, we have what is the oldest and earliest written record of the Lord's final meal. Because 1 Corinthians was written before Luke. And so this is the first instruction to the church concerning the Lord's table. 1 Corinthians 11, beginning in verse 23. The oldest written record. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body which is for you, Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also, he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Well, recent events in our own church body forced me to interrupt a Little three part mini series that we had just begun that we're calling Healthy Church Refills. Just a review of some important aspects of the Church of Jesus Christ, building a foundation of solid ecclesiology, and we always want to go back to this as often as we can. And we identified just a few topics that we felt it was important for us to kind of revisit before we get back into the Gospel of John for an extended period of time. And we looked at the signs of a thriving church member from Hebrews 10. And today I want to move on and talk to you about the vital necessity of the Lord's table. The vital necessity of the Lord's table. Now this topic is much bigger than just one text, and so we're going to take a a broad overview, and I'm going to try to kind of paint with a fairly large brush. The picture of the Lord's table, the Lord's Supper, communion, sometimes it is called the Eucharist, but we tend to avoid that term because of its association with Roman Catholicism. The Lord's Table is one of two ordinances or sacraments that we recognize as given and commanded mandated, in fact, by Christ. And so, to organize our thoughts this morning, I want to keep this as compartmentalized as I can, since this goes way beyond just one text. And so, I want to just very simply give you the what, the why, the who, the how, and the when of the Lord's Table. The what, the why, the who, the how, and the when... First of all, what is the Lord's Supper? What is the Lord's Table? Well, we've already read the basics, that there is a cup of wine and an unleavened piece of bread are used to serve as a marker, a remembrance of the blood of Jesus Christ that was shed on the cross and the body of Christ, which died for our sin. The observance of the Lord's Supper or communion was practiced from the very beginning of the early church. It's not a new development. The early church participated in fellowship meals that were sometimes called love feasts, according to Jude 12, and they most often were concluded by the Lord's Supper. And so, those are the basics. So, what is the Lord's Supper? Well, let's look at this in two different ways. First is short, and the second one is longer. First, it is the true Passover. It is the true Passover. The Passover, which was instituted in, in Exodus 12, it memorialized Israel's rescue from slavery in Egypt. And the Lord's Supper directs us to remember our rescue from slavery to sin and from the coming wrath of God. First Peter 1, 18 and 19 speaks of the ransom from our feudal ways. And this was purchased with precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. And so the slaughtered lambs of Passover were simply a portrait of the coming perfect Lamb of God who died on the cross to save us from God's judgment of our sin. So it's not hard to understand. The Passover was a shadow of the true Passover. The Last Supper was the last sanctioned Passover and the first sanctioned Lord's Table, Lord's Supper. At Passover, you took four cups of wine throughout the evening, each one having a different symbolic significance. And the third cup, the cup of sacrifice, was the cup that Jesus took to give us communion, to give us the Lord's table. So, very simply, the Lord's Supper is the true Passover. But there's a second part to what is the Lord's Supper, and that is, it is the sign of the new covenant. It is the sign of the new covenant. Now, there are several biblical covenants that have signs attached to them, and I would argue that all of them have signs attached to them. The Scripture just doesn't tell us what they all are. Now, this is very easy for all of you to understand. Why do we need a sign for a covenant? Well, many of you in this room have made a covenant with another human being, and you have a sign, and that is a wedding ring. It is a symbol. It's something that reminds you of that covenant. It's a reminder. It's a remembrance. In the Bible, the sign of a divine covenant was usually a repeatable memorial of some kind, something that happened more than once. God put a rainbow in the sky for Noah and for future generations as a sign of God's covenant with Noah that he would never again destroy the earth by a flood. So every time it rains, that sign is repeated. God gave circumcision as a perpetual reminder to Abraham and to his descendants of his promises to Abraham. Now, obviously, that's not a repeatable sign, but it is one that every man in Israel was reminded of every single day of his life. And so in that sense, it was repeatable. And then God instituted the Sabbath at Mount Sinai as a sign of his covenant with Israel that every seven days they're reminded that as God's chosen nation, they can rest in God. And by the way, to ignore or to denigrate a sign of the covenant was to say that you don't want the God of the covenant, that you reject him. And so these signs were very important. But God's first covenant with Israel, sometimes called the Mosaic Covenant, also called the Old Covenant, it had an expiration date. And when would the Old Covenant expire? When God would give a new covenant, a covenant that is meant to go on into eternity. And this new covenant would have characteristics and it would have provisions and it's important for us to lay this groundwork the characteristics of the new covenant there's several of them first of all it is new it's not a refurbished old covenant jeremiah 31 calls it i will make a new covenant with the house of israel and this is an important distinction because Israel would be very familiar with the idea of re ratifying an old covenant. This is what the book of Deuteronomy is. The book of Deuteronomy is a recommitment to the old covenant given in Exodus. But that's not what God is promising in Jeremiah 31. He's promising a completely new deal. And so it is brand new. So we don't go back to the law of Moses. We are not under that law. We are under a new covenant. There's a second characteristic of the new covenant it is everlasting. While the old covenant had an expiration date, the new covenant has none. Jeremiah 32, verse 40, I will make with them an everlasting covenant that I will not turn away from doing good to them. So it's new, it's everlasting. A third characteristic of the new covenant is that it guarantees a nation of Israel forever. It guarantees a nation of Israel forever. Jeremiah 31, beginning in verse 35 Thus says the Lord, who gives the sun for light by day and the fixed order of the moon and the stars for light by night, who stirs up the sea so that its waves roar. The Lord of hosts is his name. Here's what he says. If this fixed order, meaning the moon and the stars and the sun, if this fixed order departs from before me, declares the Lord, then shall the offspring of Israel cease from being a nation before me forever. Thus says the Lord, if the heavens above can be measured and the foundations of the earth below can be explored, then I will cast off all the offspring of Israel for all they have done. In other words, if the moon suddenly spins out of orbit, if the sun goes out, and if the earth decides to fly all the way to Pluto all of a sudden, then Israel will stop being a nation. So the new covenant is new, it's everlasting, it guarantees a nation of Israel forever. And finally, it's a covenant of peace. It is peace between God and man. Ezekiel thirty-seven twenty-six. I will make a covenant of peace with them. It shall be an everlasting covenant with them. Israel will be at peace because they're in their land. They're thriving. God will be literally among them in the person of Jesus Christ. And so those are the characteristics of the new covenant. It's new. It's everlasting. It guarantees a nation of Israel. And it's a covenant of peace. But there are provisions. What does this mean? What does the new covenant give? What does it provide? Well, first of all, the new covenant provides spiritual transformation. Spiritual transformation, meaning from Ezekiel 11, verse 19, I will give them one heart and a new spirit I will put within them. I will remove the heart of stone from their flesh and give them a heart of flesh. And so there's a a new spirit. There's a transformation that happens there's a second provision forgiveness forgiveness and this is so important for us jeremiah thirty-one, thirty-four: i will forgive their iniquity and i will remember their sin no more that is a beautiful promise for us the new covenant provides spiritual transformation it provides forgiveness and finally it provides a completed relationship with god a completed relationship with God. Jeremiah 24, 7. Again, I will give them a heart to know that I am the Lord. They shall be my people. I will be their God, for they shall return to me with their whole heart. The relationship is complete. It's consummated. And so we receive spiritual transformation, forgiveness, a completed relationship. And and this is glorious. But I don't know if you've noticed that there's a tension here. The tension is that the new covenant is promised to Israel. I'm not an Israelite, so that presents a problem. What about me? What about you? What about us Gentiles here? Well, the Gentile church is grafted into the new covenant. We participate in the new covenant, but the new covenant isn't brought into full fruition, full fulfillment until Israel comes into right relationship with God at the end of the tribulation. Now we do participate in the new covenant, in two very major ways first of all we are said to be in christ we are in the messiah of israel we are in him he is in us ephesians two thirteen says but now in christ jesus you who were once far off meaning that it used to be that to come to faith in god i would have to become an israelite I would have to come and like Ruth or like Rahab in the Old Testament, I would have to take on the faith of Israel. I was far off. But now we've been brought near by the blood of Christ. And so we participate in the new covenant because we're in Christ. And the second way we participate is we're indwelt by the Holy Spirit at the time of conversion. And listen if you don't remember anything else about the new covenant remember this the paramount feature of the new covenant is for the first time in all of history all of god's people have the holy spirit indwelling them that's phenomenal that is amazing now the blessing of the new covenant comes through israel because it's through christ the perfect israelite but these blessings are universal blessings Jesus said in Matthew 26, verse 28, This is the blood of my covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. The Apostle Paul says that as Christians, we are servants of a new covenant in 2 Corinthians three six. So the church is not the complete fulfillment of the new covenant. That would be theologically inaccurate. Because the new covenant includes material provisions such as land and rebuilt cities and vineyards and orchards. That's included all over in the Old Testament. But nowhere in the New Testament are those material provisions applied to the church. You cannot say to God, as a result of the fact that I am part of the new covenant, I want 10 acres on the west side of Bakersfield. That is not what we get. The new covenant prediction of Israel's restoration of land, of salvaged cities, of a a thriving economy, these are never given in reference to the present salvation offered by God. And so we can't say that the church is somehow a new reconstituted Israel. Otherwise, then we have to spiritualize and make, make metaphors out of all the literal promises that are given to Israel. And so we enjoy many of the blessings of the new covenant, and we celebrate that. But the fullness, the completion, the consummation of the new covenant is related specifically to the finishing of God's plan for Israel. But since the new covenant is really the final piece of God's redemptive plan and since participants in the new covenant, such as us, we receive Christ, we receive the Holy Spirit. So we have an obligation and we are given a way to fulfill that obligation and that obligation is to remember the covenant. So how do we remember this great privilege? How do we remember the fact that we are the first people, as a people in all of history, to be indwelt by the Holy Spirit? That the presence of God is literally here in this room, in in every one of you who know Christ. How do we remember this? Well, we've been given a sign, a token, a remembrance for us to remember. We have been grafted in. We have been given the promises, all that have been given to Abraham and to Isaac and to Jacob, and we are part of that. And that sign is the Lord's table. Remember, to disavow the sign of a covenant is to reject God. It is to reject that covenant. If you want to make a rainbow, for example, a symbol of gay pride, instead of the symbol of God's protection, then you have said, I hate God. If you want to ignore the law of circumcision as an Israelite in the Old Testament, then you are stating, I don't want the promises of Abraham. I don't want the God of Abraham. In fact, there's an incident in the Pentateuch in which God is about to kill Moses because he was violating the law of circumcision with his own son. If you as an Israelite chose to ignore continually the Sabbath and the Sabbath years, you were saying, I hate the God of that covenant. And eventually, that's what they paid for with their exile. And if as a professing believer in Christ, you want to denigrate or downplay or ignore The Lord's table, you are saying, I don't want Christ. Now we have to deal with a little debate at this point. It's fair to say that almost all evangelicals believe that baptism is the sign of the new covenant. I'm going to give you a few reasons. I don't think that's the case. First of all, the Lord's Supper is to be observed regularly the pattern of the regular reminders of the rainbow the daily reminder of circumcision the weekly reminder of Sabbath baptism is just one time and so that would go against that thought also baptism symbolizes the forgiveness of sins but it's never in the Bible explicitly connected openly connected with the new covenant itself in the way that the Lord's Supper is there's a much more direct connection with the Lord's table and the Lord's Supper focuses even more on the center of the new covenant and that is Christ Now, baptism is very symbolic, but there's multiple layers of symbolism. It symbolizes the washing away of sin, identification with Christ, death with Christ, resurrection with Christ. But the Lord's Supper is simply the body and blood of Jesus, period. And so it is very, very specific. But I think that the the Lord's Supper is the symbol of the new covenant because Jesus said it is. So that's the easiest way to go. Luke 22, verse 20 Likewise, the cup, after they had eaten, he took the cup, saying, This cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. That's a way of saying it signifies. It is the sign of the new covenant. The bread, the cup, is the sign. So, what is the Lord's Supper? It is the true Passover, and it is the sign of the new covenant. So, that's the what. How about the why? Why do we observe the Lord's Supper? Why is this important? Well, let me give you two of them. Again, a short one and a longer one. First of all, it is a means of grace. It is a means of grace. This is a phrase that has been used historically to refer to those things which are are avenues of additional blessing from God. We have other means of grace. We have the Bible. We have baptism. We have fellowship with one another. We have prayer. We have worship. We have the Lord's table. We have the singing of psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. We have these means of grace. Now, it doesn't mean that it's something that makes a person more fit, more qualified to receive justification from God. That's the Roman Catholic view. When the Catholic says means of grace, they mean something that's getting you more saved. That's not what we mean by that. I'm actually not a huge fan of the phrase means of grace. I think it's a little bit confusing, but it's such an historic phrase that it's one that you need to understand. This is not, by the way, the Catholic view that says that these things impart grace to us whether you have faith or not. Roman Catholicism says, look, just get your kids in and get them to start taking the Eucharist every week and get them to Mass because eventually God will save them through that. We don't believe that. God must save you first. But like the Bible, prayer, worship, baptism, fellowship of the saints, the Lord's table is a means to receive blessing and help from the Lord. Here's a second why. The Lord's Supper is what we might call a special remembrance. It is a special remembrance. Now, theologians generally agree that there are four major views of the meaning of the Lord's Supper and it's important for you to understand these. There is, first of all, the Roman Catholic view. The Roman Catholic view says that they take the Eucharist because it's necessary to receive the grace of God, that salvation is gained in part by continuing to partake. And that's why they have so many sacraments. They have seven, we have two, because you need all that you can get to keep getting saved, in in their view. This is also the view of the Orthodox churches, Greek Orthodox, Russian Orthodox, and so forth, One Greek Orthodox theologian says, quote, the reception of the gift of salvation is not a one time event, but a lifetime process, which is why if you're Greek Orthodox, at the end of your life, you're not exactly certain what's going to happen. Another theologian says, through the Eucharist, the worshiper participates in the mystery of salvation. Now the Roman Catholic view includes a a belief in transubstantiation, meaning that the substance is changed. There's an actual metaphysical change in the elements of the bread and the wine. They change literally into the body and the blood of Christ, and that the Eucharist is a real sacrifice offered once again. That's why in the Catholic Church, that Christ is still on the cross, because the sacrifice of Christ is offered over and over again on behalf of the worshipers, that propitiation must be received continually. Very similarly, the official dogma of the Greek Orthodox Church states, quote, the Eucharist gifts of bread and wine become for us his body and his blood. We affirm that these holy gifts are transfigured into Christ. We would vehemently reject that view because it's based on mysticism. It crucifies Christ over and over again when in fact Hebrews 9.12 says that Christ gave a once-for-all sacrifice. That is simply mysticism. There's no other word for it. And it completely denies the fact that the New Testament clearly teaches that salvation is a one-time event and that assurance of salvation is possible. First John 5, 11 and 12, this is the testimony that God gave us, past tense, eternal life, and that this life is in his Son. Whoever has the Son has, present tense, I possess it right now, has life. Whoever does not have the Son of God does not have life. Now that's the Roman Catholic view. But then there's the Lutheran view. And you say, oh, Martin Luther is a good guy. Great. We're on the same page. Well, he kept some leftovers from Roman Catholicism in that he believed that Christ's body and blood are physically present in the elements. Now, he didn't believe in transubstantiation and he rejected the rest of the Mass, the Catholic Mass, but he had trouble letting go of some of that. He took the words of Jesus, this is my body, completely literally but he didn't see it as as just a, a metaphor. He would say that the molecules of the bread and the wine don't actually change, but the body and blood are with, under, and above the elements. So that somehow the body and the blood of Christ are sort of floating around the elements there. We would say, Martin, what on earth are you thinking? But again, all that is is a renovated Catholic view. Well, then we would consider the Reformed view. The Reformed view, this is sometimes called the Calvinist view because it's what John Calvin believed. You can have a Calvinist view of the Lord's tu- Supper, by the way, without being a Calvinist. It just means this is what he believed about the Lord's table. Christ is present in the Lord's Supper, but not physically or bod- bodily. The Reformed view says his presence is spiritual and dynamic, there's a special presence the Holy Spirit brings us into closer connection with the person of Christ there is an actual objective benefit to the observance brought by Christ himself that that when you take the cup when you take the bread that there is a, a, a new vitality and strength in Christ that's given but it does depend on your faith and it depends on the humility of the recipient well then the fourth major view we would call the Zwinglian view I didn't make that up so I'll spell it for you Z-W-I-N-G-L-I-A-N after the reformer Ulrich Zwingli who was friends with John Calvin. This is simply the view that this is a commemoration. It is a remembrance to bring to our minds the death of Christ and thankfulness for the work of the cross. The benefit of the observance is simply that we receive by faith the continued benefits of Christ's death and it also functions as a, as a proclamation 1 Corinthians eleven twenty six. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death. It is preaching, as it were, through the Lord's table. And Zwingli would say, and I, I agree with him, the Lord's table doesn't bring Christ to the worshiper as much as the faith of the worshiper brings Christ to the table. Now, Calvin and, and Zwingli, they agreed that their views of the Lord's table were almost identical. And whether you hold to the Reformed view, the Calvinist view, or the Zwinglian view, either one is supportable. But it certainly is accurate to speak of the unique presence of Christ with his people. That, that is accurate. Now, Matthew 28, 20 says he's with us all the time. But the idea of a... Spiritual presence as a somehow kind of heightened presence, sometimes that could be confusing. And so, how do we understand this? Is there this automatic extra special presence of Christ that is mystical and, and mysterious? Well, sort of a yes and no. How do we understand the Lord's Supper? At Grace Bible Church, we would come closest to the memorial view, the Zwinglian view, with some reform flavoring. Can we put it that way? Here's what our doctrinal statement says. We teach that the Lord's Supper is the commemoration and proclamation of his death until he comes and should be always preceded by solemn self-examination. We also teach that whereas the elements of communion are only representative of the flesh and blood of Christ, the Lord's Supper is nevertheless an actual communion with the risen Christ who is present in a unique way Fellowshipping with his people, so is there a special mystical presence where that Jesus kind of floats in a little bit more so at the lord 's table than he does at other times? No, is there a unique presence of Christ in that we are doing something that He has commanded? Yes, why in the same way that there's a unique presence of Christ when we sing, when we pray, when we fellowship together, when we read his word, when we preach the Word. All of those things give us a unique presence with Christ because we're in more intimate communion with him at that moment. So let's just kind of list some of the whys from what we've studied so far. Just kind of a little laundry list here. It's a memorial reminder of the sacrifice of Christ. It is a memorial. Now, where do we get this? Jesus said in Luke 22, 19, do this in remembrance of me. So it's a, it's a memorial second it encapsulates gospel truth do you understand that the remembrance of the body and the blood of christ reminds us of so many things that he was on earth he had an earthly life he had a death he had a resurrection and he has ascended into heaven because he reminded us that he'll drink this with us again later and so it encapsulates gospel truth it's a memorial it encapsulates gospel truth it also gives us pause to repent it gives us pause to repent. We'll look at this more in a moment, but 1 Corinthians eleven twenty eight 28 warns us to examine our own hearts. It gives us pause to reaffirm our covenant loyalty to Christ, that we reaffirm the sign of the covenant. We are in covenant. His part of the covenant is that he is covenanted to save us for all eternity. Our part of the covenant is, Ephesians 4, 1, to walk in the manner that's worthy. And so we affirm our part of the covenant. Another why, it points us to the future when Christ returns. 1 Corinthians eleven twenty six 26, As often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. And so it's a reminder for us to not just look back to the cross, but look ahead to his future coming. It is also a corporate proclamation of the death of Christ. You proclaim the Lord's death. You might not be a preacher. You might not be a teacher. But when you take the Lord's table to all those around you, you are proclaiming his death. It's a testimony of our unity together. 1 Corinthians 10:17 says there is one bread we who are many are one body for we all partake of the one bread there is unity together there are a lot of things that Christians can disagree on you know what the lord's table does it makes almost all of those irrelevant because we all meet together at the foot of the cross and we're thankful for that it's also an intensely meaningful act of worship It's an intensely meaningful act of worship. 1 Corinthians 10, 16 says, The cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? That is intense. That is big time. So why do we participate in the Lord's Supper? It is a memorial. It is a means of grace. Well, what about who? Who may participate? This has sort of been the question of the ages. There's a wide range of opinion as to who may participate, and I'll just give you the ranges. On the one hand, anyone who happens to be in the church building. If you have walked in today and you you say, hey, what's that silver stuff there? Um, Sure, I'll take that. That's one side. The other side of that spectrum would say only official members of the local church in which the Lord's table is being served may participate. This is the centuries-old question of how to fence the table. So let me give you the short answer: Who may participate, very simply, those who have visibly and publicly identified with the body of Christ? Those who have visibly and publicly identified with the body of Christ? A Guy by the name of Solomon Stoddard. He was an influential Puritan pastor of the 18th century of the Congregational Church of Northampton, Massachusetts. And he viewed the Lord's table as what he called a converting ordinance. That it was also intended for unbelievers who had a basic knowledge of Christianity to to bring them to true internal conversion. Now, this was important because to become a citizen of Massachusetts Bay Colony, you had to be a church member. And if you were a church member, then you could take communion. And so this is very political in nature. And so Stoddard introduced what he called the halfway covenant, the halfway covenant. The church was in decline. They needed to bolster numbers in the church and they needed to bolster citizenship because there was a, a, a move afoot to pull away from England and so we needed to have lots of citizens. And Stoddard was determined to do his part. And so what he said with the halfway covenant was that children, including adult children, of professing members, professing believers and church members, if they were moral in character, they could be baptized in hope that someday they would be saved. But eventually, Stoddard said, that's not enough. That's not gracious enough. That's not generous enough. So he also began to admit these unbelievers to the Lord's table because he saw the Lord's table in the words of church historian Mark Knoll, quote, a seal, not of personal regeneration, but of the truth of God's revelation in Christ and of God's willingness, listen to this, to covenant with Christian nations, you see, Stoddard and all of the Puritans in his era at that time generally regarded New England or the Massachusetts Bay uh, area as a Christian nation. And so God was going to make a covenant with the nation, therefore, everyone had to participate. We might call this national Christianity. Well, it was very successful, it created huge memberships in the church unbelievers getting baptized and taking the lord's table all in the name of pulling together what would eventually become the united states of america and so to pass on this great tradition solomon stoddard handpicked his successor a guy that you're familiar with a guy by the name of jonathan edwards his grandson jonathan edwards had a different stance eventually he fenced the table hard He said, no, you must be a believer in Jesus Christ, baptized as a believer in order to receive the Lord's table. And the church got rid of him after 23 years. Why? Because it started to diminish church attendance because it downplayed nationalized Christianity and and upgraded soteriology to being biblical. And so he lost his position over that. Now, it's important to understand that early in the Reformation, the church and the state were intertwined. So Solomon Stoddard's view of church membership as part of citizenship, that wasn't radical, that was normal. That's what most people believed. On May 21st, 1536, the citizens of Geneva, Switzerland, they voted for the doctrines of grace and against Roman Catholicism. So it'd be like going to the polls here in Bakersfield and we're gonna vote whether you're Reformed or whether you're Catholic. And so Geneva, as a city, was officially reformed. A guy by the name of John Calvin was added to the team of reformers in Geneva, and he drafted a plan for the reformation of the church that new doctrine must include new practices, that orthodoxy must relate to orthopraxy. And one of these new practices was to fence the table, to guard the table. And he gave seven reasons that you could be barred, you could be taken away from receiving the Lord's Supper. If you spoke critically against Reformed doctrine, if you were unfaithful in church attendance, if you were disrespectful and prideful toward your elders, if you ignored the godly correction of fellow believers, if you had addictions and and public vices such as drunkenness, if you were guilty of a felony-type crime, and then number seven, just for good measure, if you were guilty of any of those first six and you tried to come to the Lord's table anyway. The eminent theologian, Dr. Millard Erickson, he wrote this, there is something to be said for making the sacrament sufficiently unavailable as to require a definite intention and decision to participate. And I would agree with that. So, who may participate? Well, since the Lord's table doesn't save you and since it's given specifically to believers in Christ, and since believers in Christ are identified as such by their willingness to be baptized, and since baptism is by definition an act of joining a local body of believers, we say those who visibly and publicly identify with the body of Christ, meaning those who have been publicly baptized and joined the local church. Now, we have to admit a couple of realities, and we try to adjust to them. First of all, in an era with automobiles and planes and all kinds of transportation, we regularly have guests among us who love Christ. Maybe visiting relatives and so forth who, are, who have been faithfully baptized, faithful members of another local church. And so we open the table to you gladly, but know that it is on your conscience as to whether you're a true believer or not. That is not my responsibility. That is yours. And second we don't have in our particular church we don't have the capability to instantly baptize or instantly confer church membership if we did this might be different but we have to set up our baptistry it's like the world's largest lego model that we we set up we have to schedule our membership class far in advance and so so we fall back on the intention of your heart that if it is your intention, as soon as you are capable of being baptized, as soon as you are capable of joining the local church, then we have a clear conscience about sharing the Lord's table with you. Next week I'll be teaching on baptism, and we'll get into some more details on that. But I will say this if you claim to be a Christian and you don't want to be baptized, or you're still thinking about it, while their baptism is a command of Christ. In reality, the church, the local church, doesn't have a way to know whether you're a Christian or not. So the Lord's Table is not for those who are still hesitant or trying to decide if you want to obey Christ or not. The Lord's Table is not for you. It is for you to be baptized and to become a member. Now, that's not an effort to be exclusive. It is an effort to impart the understanding that refusal to be baptized is tantamount to refusal to follow Christ And to the best of our ability, we will not have the Lord's table tainted by those who are anything less than what Jesus defined as being saved. If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. So who may participate? Those visibly and publicly identified with the body of Christ. Well, how do you participate? There's three little pieces to this, and this is important for us today because Understanding this part is crucial for our worship today. First of all, you participate with confession. You participate with confession of sin. Paul gave this instruction in 1 Corinthians 11. Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then. And so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. He goes on to say, For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning, the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. That is why many of you are weak and ill, and some have died. This is a big deal to the Lord. Now, the question is, does this mean that God might punish the Christian who partakes of the Lord's table in an unworthy manner, or the professing Christian who has refused to be baptized and join the church, or does it mean that he's punishing the unbeliever For taking the Lord's table without having taken Christ. Well in this context I think Paul is speaking to the professing Christian, but can I say this? Let all people be afraid to take the Lord's table in vain. Let everyone be afraid. Listen, why is this a big deal to God? This is the representation of the day when God the Father watched his only son, his beloved son, die a cruel death in which he bled everywhere, in which his flesh was torn. There were screams of agony. If you dare take the symbol of this death with anything less than humility and deference and obedience and confession of sin, it will not bode well for you. Why is that? Because in many ways, of course, the Lord's table is a celebration, but it is also, also—if I, can I put it this way? It is a funeral service for Jesus Christ. And how would you feel if an intruder crashed the funeral service of your son? You would be angry. And the Lord is rightly angry when anyone crashes into what is the memorial of his son's death. And so to the believer, I would say, don't test God by celebrating the means of forgiveness of sin when you still hold bitterness and resentment against another. And to the one who has refused salvation in Christ, don't tempt God to get tired of you mocking the death of his son. Come to faith instead. Be baptized, then take the Lord's table. There's a second piece of how to participate. First, it's with confession. Second, with the church. It is with the church, both in Scripture and in church history It's extremely clear that the Lord's Supper is a corporate event. It's an event that we celebrate together. Now, there's no specific prohibition against taking the Lord's table alone, but that would defeat one of the purposes, that it's a proclamation. You can't proclaim anything when you're alone. Each of you are proclaiming that you have received the payment for sin made by Christ, that when you see your neighbor on this side and on this side taking the bread and taking the cup, you are saying, I have received Christ and I proclaim his death. Christ is in me. I am in Christ. The reformers insisted that the true local church has three qualities, three characteristics. First, the preached word of God. Second, the faithful exercise of church discipline. And third, the right administration of baptism and the Lord's Supper. It is the job of the church. We do this together. Well, there's a third piece of how to participate. It's with confession of sin, with the church, And finally, with reasonable standards. I'm sorry, reasonable symbols. With reasonable symbols. Now, the great debate is whether or not real wine with alcoholic content must be used to maintain the integrity of the Lord's Supper. There's a funny story about in some churches, they offer one or the other. You can either take the grape juice or you can take the wine. But if you mix them up, then you can end up violating your conscience by accident. That's happened all the time. Now, there is some hypocrisy here, since some churches that insist on real wine also serve a fluffy baked loaf of bread, which is not what uh, Jesus used. They used um, the cracker-like unleavened bread. But in many Christian circles, because of the problem of drunkenness, which the Bible clearly condemns, they began to just view all alcohol as not really useful or helpful to the Christian walk, well, there was, a, there was a technical problem with this. Before 1913, when home refrigerators became uh, readily available, raw grape juice turns into wine, whether you want it to or not. It just did. Some churches actually only would take communion in the seasons when you could get fresh grapes, and they could literally just make the, the grape juice uh, right before church. Well, in 1869, there was a dentist who perfected a juice pasteurization process in his kitchen and he started selling his unfermented wine to churches who preferred a non-alcoholic substitute. It was called Dr. Welch's Unfermented Wine and now we just know it as Welch's Grape Juice. That's why we have it. So why do we just use juice? Why do we not use wine? And it's okay to use wine. Either way is okay, but we have a reason. It's not because the Bible says all alcohol is evil. The Bible doesn't say that. But it is to obey the spirit of being aware of causing someone to stumble. In talking about sensitivities to their past unbelieving life that some believers have, the Apostle Paul exhorted us in Romans fourteen twenty one. It is not good to eat meat for which, for some, reminded them of the meat sacrifices they had made to idols in the past. It is not good to eat meat or drink wine or do anything that causes your brother to stumble. Perhaps some of you here have struggled with drinking too much. Maybe that's even the struggle for you now. And so for your sake, we just simply serve juice and that way we avoid the issue. But the real concern isn't the exact replication of the elements. The real concern is capturing the symbolism of the elements. In fact, to be exact is basically impossible. In Jesus' day, wine was generally diluted. It was used almost as a water flavoring. Have you ever bought those little those little uh, tubes of water flavor that you kind of squirt in your water bottle? That's what wine was often used for. Millard Erickson notes that wine was diluted with, quote, anywhere from one to 20 parts of water for every part of wine. So we don't really know how strong it was. What were they serving? But does that mean that just using anything at all is okay? Somehow, Unless it's an emergency, I don't think that using a can of Dr. Pepper and a can of Pringles as our elements, I just don't think that does the job. So we participate with reasonable symbols to remind us of the body which was broken and the blood which was shed. Finally, this is an easy one, when to participate? When, when do we participate? This is very easy to answer. You ready for this? This is going to be profound. Not too much and not too little. How about that? We don't have airtight, precise records of frequency in the early church, but it could have been as frequently as every week. But scripture gives no command concerning frequency. Here's the closest thing we have. 1 Corinthians eleven twenty six. 26. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. How often? As often as you do. And so we don't want to receive the Lord's Supper so frequently that it becomes a religious routine with no opportunity to pause and think about it. And we don't want to do so so infrequently that we have long gaps of time between remembering the truths that are represented here. So, what is the Lord's Supper? It is the true Passover, it is the sign of the new covenant. Why do we take the Lord's Supper? It is a means of grace, it is a special remembrance. Who may participate? Those visibly and publicly identified with the body of Christ how do you participate with confession of sin with the church with reasonable symbols and when do you participate not too much and not too little in John Calvin's day in Geneva they found out it's a lot easier to reform doctrine than it is to reform lives to reform behavior some of the influential families in Geneva formed an opposition party they called themselves the libertines and they protested about anyone ever being suspended or barred from the lord's table a man by the name of philibert Bertilier, he was forbidden from the lord's table because he publicly denounced the spiritual authority of the church and he publicly denounced specifically john calvin and he said i'm as good as you i could be a pastor i'm just as qualified and he was very very disrespectful in other words he had a submission problem and so he was barred from the lord's table until he dealt with his attitude well, the Libertines, they were essentially the ACLU of their day. And they took up this issue and they began gaining power on the city council. And there was, a, there was a way for a smaller part of the council to vote on policy without going to the whole council. And so the smaller part of the council began to overrule the authority of church leadership, the ministers of Geneva. And they restored, they decreed that Bertelier was to be given the Lord's table the following Sunday. Well, guess whose church that Berthelier went to? He went to Calvin's church. Two days later on a Sunday at St. Pierre's Cathedral where Calvin preached, the place was packed. This is September 3rd, 1553. All the Libertines were there and get this, they were armed. They all had swords and they had their hands on their swords and they were waiting for the moment where in their church all the people would come forward to take the bread and to take the wine. They were waiting for the moment when Bertolier would come forward and they would draw their swords and defend his right to take the Lord's table. Well, Calvin's friend, Theodore Beza, he reports what happened. And I'm reading from Beza. But Calvin, though he had been informed of what was done only two days before the usual period of celebrating the Lord's Supper, raising his voice and his hand in the course of his sermon, after he had spoken at some length of the, what he called the despisers of sacred mysteries, meaning the elements of the Lord's table, he exclaimed, I will die sooner than this hand stretch forth the sacred things of the Lord to those who have been judged despisers. Those words, strange to say, had such an effect upon these men, however lawless, that Perrin, a leader of the Libertines, secretly advised Bertelier to not come forward to the table. The sacrament was celebrated with extraordinary silence, not without some degree of trembling, as if the deity himself were actually present. That is the way to celebrate the Lord's table, not without some degree of trembling. That's how we come. The Lord's table is the core of Christian worship. It is the most succinct and clear presentation of the gospel that we have. And so my hope for you and for myself is that the Lord's table would be a glorious and somber and a celebratory remembrance that Christ intended it to be. If you are not a believer in Christ, this is not for you. It's for you to watch, and hopefully we pray to draw you to him as you see the gospel illustrated if you are a believer in Christ and you continue to choose rebellion, you continue to choose to disregard your call to obey the Lord in all things, if I could say this, you are not welcome at this table. You need to get your act together. You need to confess. If you have been, however, baptized by immersion or shortly intend to do so at the very first opportunity, if you have joined with this body of believers or shortly intend to do so, or if you are a guest with us that meets those qualifications in your own local church, You are more than welcome to the table of the Lord. If you're a member of this or another legitimate church and you can clear your conscience by confession of sin, then all of you are welcome because I want to just give you three reminders and the last one's the most important one. First, it is a glorious table. Second, it is an important table, but here's the most important one. It is the Lord's table is the Lord's table and only those that he invites will come our Father we come to you now thankful for the opportunity it's a, it's a rare opportunity to apply what we have learned immediately and so Lord we come now asking you to bless us as we partake in the Lord's table not without some degree of trembling do we come Lord, I pray for each person who is here that even now in these moments that they would be examining their own heart confessing sin, Lord. Confessing that they have spoken disrespectfully to their husbands, that they have been harsh with their wives, that they have been unfaithful with their children, they have been disobedient toward parents, that we have not acted in a manner worthy of the calling to which we've been called. And Lord, in particular, taking our cue from 1 Corinthians 11, if there is any here who continues to regard a brother or sister with disdain and with anger and with bitterness, might you give them the grace to release that, to ask for forgiveness now, or to have the honesty to not take the Lord's table and that you might deal with their hearts. Lord, we come to you now with a sense of urgency, a sense of sobriety, a sense of joy. Because the Lord's table is our means to celebrate our salvation, but also to remember that Jesus had to die for us to be saved. And so for that, we give you thanks. Might you bless us with your special, unique presence in this time. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.